This is the Business of College Sports podcast with your host, the founder of businessofcollegesports.com, Christy Dosh. Find her on Twitter and Instagram at sportsbizmiths. Welcome to the Business of College Sports. I'm your host, Christy Dosh, the Sports Biz Miss. And I have got a return guest today, Mr. Tim Russell, the CEO of the Intercollegiate Tennis Association. And I'm bringing Tim back because when I looked at my analytics for 2020, my most listened to episode was with Tim back in June of 2020. We talked about why tennis seemed to be getting cut more than any other sport at Division One, as we went into the pandemic and we saw more and more schools cutting programs. Unfortunately, tennis has continued to take uh, the brunt of many of the cuts. When Tim and I talked in June, the day we recorded, 28 programs had been cut. It took me about 10 days before that episode was published. In that 10 days, it jumped from 28 to 45. Uh, Tim tells me now that number jumped into uh, the mid 50s. However, several programs have been added back. So it's a little tough to track. There are a couple of programs uh, that are still maybe on the verge of coming back. But I would say all said and done, we're probably somewhere between 45 and 52, 53 programs that have been cut. Um, So I wanted to talk again about why tennis why are we seeing more tennis programs cut than any other sport and i thought uh, tim had some great insight on that and we also talked about what coaches can proactively do to try to ensure that their program doesn't end up on the chopping block and i think this advice applies to any sport not just to tennis um we we talked a lot about a really interesting health check the ITA has on their website for coaches and how useful it is for other sports as well. So I will link over to that in the show notes. If you are the coach of any sport, I encourage you to give this a listen and also uh, check out the resources the ITA has because I think it can help you with your sport as well. So without further ado, here is my interview with Tim Russell. Welcome back to the podcast, Tim. I really appreciate you joining us here again. Hey, it's a pleasure to be with you. So I know that this is not the most uh, uplifting, maybe in positive topic to circle back on, but when I looked at my podcast stats from 2020, uh, my episode with you was the most listened to episode we had all year. And so I felt like we did that episode in June. Uh, Lots has changed since June. And I know we've got some things to talk about in terms of programs being cut, but also I now get press releases and email newsletters from you guys. And I know that there's positive things happening and positive ways in which the ITA sort of stepped up to serve the collegiate tennis community. Um, So we'll make sure and balance this podcast out so that it's uh, not all bad news. We've got good news too, right? There's a lot of good news in the world of college tennis. Okay, so I want to recap just for a minute in case folks didn't listen to that first episode. Just your thoughts on why tennis seems to have been more vulnerable to being cut than maybe some other Olympic sports during this past you know, nine months or so. Okay, sure. And uh, again, one of my themes is that college tennis is strong and we were one of a number of sports that were cut and none of us like to see any cut uh, in any sport. I mean, I think all of us are interested in participation opportunities. I mean, that's really what college sports 
are about. Uh, but your specific question is why tennis might have been a little more vulnerable. So just for the context for the listeners, I think we need to mention that they were mostly vulnerable in the division one space, mm-hmm. a few division two schools, but I mean, division three remained fairly consistent simply because the goals of division three from a student athlete experience are, are mostly about participation. Right. So it wasn't even just tennis, but even football and the like in division three, they just have a different mindset about what a division three athlete is about. And I think uh, just to summarize in terms of the world of tennis, there are a lot of variables that a athletic director or a president or a team together might look at at evaluating any sport. Those would include on-court performance. I mean, simply, are you winning or not? Uh, What about student graduation rates and and uh, and things like GPAs and community service, but also things like uh, facilities. Mm-hmm. So for example, I think last time we chatted, a number of the schools had actually cut their programs because the facilities were in bad shape or right. they had to rent an indoor facility that actually had been sold. So I guess one of the messages I would share is that there's not one consistent answer to that question is why you might cut a you know, a program. Uh, we all followed, even into September, uh, the University of Minnesota, which actually had a very large discussion that you could actually follow streaming online about their entire athletics department. And they cut a number of programs of which tennis was one. Right. And that was probably the saddest example since you and I chatted last because University of Minnesota men's program had basically done everything right. They had a booster club called the Baseline Club. They raised a large endowment. Their facility was actually used for community engagement. The USTA's Northern Section had an association. The team was highly successful. Mm-hmm. They'd gone to the NCAA championship, et cetera, et cetera. So they were one of the last programs you would have imagined. But I actually listened to the Board of Regents discussion, and it was fascinating because it was a gut wrench, a gut-wrenching thing for that entire Board of Regents. And if you wanted to interview Mark Coyle, the AD, you know, he might not even do a podcast with you because 60 Minutes did an interview that mentioned University of Minnesota and he wouldn't actually speak on camera. But what was talked about at the Board of Regents was that they were trying to strike a balance within their athletic department where they felt that they needed to build a sustainable model over their 19 Uh, sports. Mm -hmm. Some of their counterparts had more sports and they didn't think they could compete. So then the question is, why cut tennis? And there was everything from Title IX considerations uh, to, to the like. So I guess the message I'm sending here is there's no one answer. Every situation's different. And sadly, even top programs that have done everything right could end up being cut. So it's very frustrating when that happens. So when I was researching this, you know, we had talked about it and I had already kind of gotten my wheels turning. So now I've been following everyone who's been writing about tennis programs being cut in the various reasons. And you're right. I saw a lot where it talked about uh, facilities that were in need of improvement and that, uh, you know, once they looked at the finances of doing that, it was an easy sport to cut because they didn't feel like they had the money for the facilities. Um, Another thing I saw mentioned, and I'm curious what you think about this is, um, the number of scholarships that are offered, and I believe it's four and a half for men and eight for women. And so I saw an argument 
about one of the programs that was cut um, saying that tennis generates a smaller percentage of tuition revenue than the other Olympic sports at that school. Um, is that a conversation you've heard a lot? I mean, how much do you think the, the scholarships and the sort of tuition revenue play into this? So great question. And I think it's a counterintuitive argument because I've actually been making just the opposite argument. If you really pause and you've got your numbers spot on, four and a half scholarships for men, eight for women. And if you think about that, we have had schools that have been cut where the amount of tuition that came in actually exceeded what the whole tennis budget was. I'll give you a specific example. So St. Edwards University in Austin, Texas was mm -hmm. a division two program and they got cut and they only had two scholarships. So they didn't even have four and a half and tuition was $60,000, which meant that there were 10 guys paying $60,000. So that's $600,000. Yeah. And the entire budget for the men's program was somewhere between $500,000 and $550,000. So it made no sense to me. That program was actually making money. Now to the argument that you put forth, if you have, for example, uh, a swimming team or you have a track and field team uh, that has 30 or 40 or 50 members, obviously they could bring in more revenue than, you know, a tennis team. But I don't know why anybody would want to cut a sport that not only was highly ranked, this school actually had a top 10 D2 program. And sometimes these presidents just have a burr in their bonnet or they've had some you know, decision they wanted to make. But I'm trying to get our coaches to make the argument that we're bringing in a lot of money. Right. The other argument that we're trying to make with the USTA is you can build a tennis program that has a community hub that maybe could generate 300000 or $500,000 a year by opening your tennis facilities to the community for a junior development program, for junior tournaments, for mm -hmm. adult Leagues. Now that requires that the coach and the school commit to some extra things, but we think that's the way to ensure success, to be so embedded in your community that no AD president or board of trustees would ever think about cutting your program. We're going to circle back to that because I, I had a, a question sort of along the lines uh, of, of raising money and sort of some outside of the box thinking and some ideas I saw floating around on the internet. So we'll put a pin in that and come back to that. Um, the other argument I saw for why, not the argument I'm making, but the other argument I saw for cutting tennis was that um, there's such a huge percentage of tennis rosters that are international. And the NCAA numbers I found were that 63% of division one men's tennis players and 62% of division one women's tennis players in 2018. So the numbers are a couple of years old came from outside of the United States. And one of the arguments I saw that was written by a columnist at a, where a state school had been cut. And quite frankly, I don't remember off the top of my head, which school it was um, where tennis had been cut said, you know, the, the school exists as a public institution of the state to serve, you know, in-state students. And so tennis was an easy one to cut because most of their team was international. I think maybe at that school, even the entire team was international. But the argument that was made back by someone else I saw um, was that therefore the international students, that's all out of state tuition. 
And so when you look at it from a revenue generation standpoint, much like you were talking about, um, you know, with these programs where the tuition dollars outweigh the expense of the program. And I went to a division three uh, for undergrad. So I'm very familiar with the, uh, the sort of model of having sports so that you are boosting tuition. I know a lot of division three add football because they want to add male enrollment because they're short on male enrollment. So very familiar with that argument. Um, but how do you think this, uh, the fact that tennis, it draws so many international student athletes, how do you think that's a good or a bad thing for tennis? Should it matter? Great question. And we could actually probably spend several podcasts on just <laughs> that issue, but let me try to summarize. We will have you back again. I'm always oh, I, game to have you back again. <laughs> I look forward to it. Um, so first of all, in some respects, it's a very nuanced argument. In some respects, it's pretty straightforward. So I'll try to, to your very fine question, answer for both sides of the equation. So first of all, tennis is a global sport. So we actually think that the global nature of tennis is a strength for college tennis. Right. If you do the numbers, it's probably the third most popular sport you know, in the world, when you think about uh, some statistics that are out there, uh, things like soccer and basketball, but then comes tennis. So that's kind of a, a baseline. The next thing that you need to do is balance out the number of scholarships that there are versus the amount of American junior players there are. Uh, and I don't want to get too complicated, but if we have, let's say, uh, 315 women's programs at the D1 level and about 260 men, you can do the math that multiplies four and a half times 265, but you could have a thousand scholarships. There are not enough American junior players who play at the level that certain international players right. do. So part of this just comes down to winning. Um, D1 schools have a thing called the Capital Cup, the Director's Cup, mm -hmm. where they get points for how well they do. So a lot of coaches want to just field the best teams they can. You know, so I have been arguing with our coaches that an existential threat to our sport could be not enough Americans. And I'm making that at the same time that I'm talking with our friends at the USTA about what can all of us do together to bolster up the number of American juniors playing tennis. So tennis is actually kind of a tricky game to learn. You know, you have to get a racket, take some lessons. It's not like just soccer where my four-year-old grandson has a Tuesday practice and by Saturday he's playing Right. You know, games. So we've got the issue of the supply and demand. We've got the issue of people wanting to win. But another issue I'd like your listeners to think about is almost every college president nowadays is talking about the global reach of their institution. So while you might have had somebody who you cited said, oh, we're a state institution and, you know, we don't want to recruit as many international players. If you are Michael Crow, the president of Arizona State University, he's talking not about how ASU gets ranked against other American schools, but how we get ranked, you know, in the world. Right. And if you were to talk to Ray Anderson, the very enlightened AD at ASU, he would say the same thing. So some presidents and ADs are viewing tennis as a way to actually bolster their global 
uh, reach. I'll give you an example at Middle Tennessee State. Mm -hmm. So their president is actually not just for tennis, but for all parts of the university, if you can find an international student who has a 3.7 uh, GPA or above, they can actually get in-state tuition. Wow. So if you're Jimmy Boradame, who's the coach at Middle Tennessee, who's a great coach at a great school, it actually is an incentive to find an international player who's going to get in-state tuition. So without getting too complicated, you should go on the USTA rolls and see how many 18-year-old uh, boys in Tennessee are ranked in the USTA. So if Jimmy wants to be a top 25 school in America, he'd love to have kids from Tennessee, but if they're not there, where do you go? Well, then yeah. you go to around the country. If they're not there, where do you go around the world? I would like to say that once international players join a team, there isn't this America versus uh, international player. They all get on a team. And I would like to end by saying it's not just tennis. I used to be an orchestra conductor, Arizona State University. I wanted to recruit the best musicians from Phoenix, then the best musicians from America, but then the best musicians from around the world. So we had Chinese students, Israeli students. If you go to the Juilliard School of Music, they're gonna not just wanna be the best school of music in New York City, but the best one in the, in the world. And that's how our tennis coaches think. So you look at a coach, let's say like Ty Tucker at Ohio State. Ty has always been in the top three, four, five, two, you know, of the country in men's uh, tennis for the last 20 years. He's got an incredible formula where you will always see top young men from the state of Ohio. Then you will find some international players. I'm thinking about people like M Mikel Torpegard, and then there'll be other students from around the country. That is a wonderful balance in my mind. I'm not necessarily a fan of a school that would have an all international uh, roster, because I don't think that is indicative of what American universities should be about. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a complicated issue. It's mostly at D1 and 2. D3, there are only 3% international students because they don't offer scholarships. Yeah. So the Patriot League, it, which is a D1 league, doesn't have but 3% because they don't offer scholarships. And obviously, the Ivies don't offer scholarships uh, as well. You know, so it's a complicated issue for some people. It's fairly straightforward for others. Supply and demand, the global nature of our support of our sport and the global reach of American universities. You made me think of a question I didn't initially have on my list, but you know, when I talk to you, you always make such a good argument for tennis. Um, and having been on the consulting side and having been in the room when programs have been cut, although I have to say, I have never been part of a group that cut tennis, <laughs> um, really? other sports, unfortunately, but tennis has not ever been one of the ones on the chopping block that I recall from any of the schools that uh, I've done consulting with. But I've been in the room when we're having those conversations and I know enough to know that usually the coach is the last to find out um, that the program's getting cut. It's not like they get called in and get the opportunity to make the case for their sport. I, I would say 99% of the time I've been around those conversations, the coaches don't know until about three minutes before the student athletes know. Um, right. So 
are you, do you advise, especially knowing what's been going on over the last nine months or so, do you advise coaches to be meeting with ADs or with presidents and making these sort of cases more proactively? So terrific question. If uh, coaches and even friends of college tennis go on the ITA website, they'll find that we've created a health index to help get our coaches ahead of the curve. I like to tell people I'd prefer to be an architect upstream instead of a plumber downstream. Yeah. <laughs> the, world has, the world has enough plumbing, but we have an index that has a whole list of things where somebody can kind of see how you're doing. How are your facilities? How's your win loss record? Uh, how is your collective GPA? Do you have a alumni board? Do you have a local community fundraising group? Do you do uh, activities with juniors and uh, senior citizens and community, the entire thing. But the short answer to your specific question, having referenced the health index is, is yes. We would recommend that a coach is we, you know, meeting every week or every other week with what would be called their sports specific administrator, who's not always their AD, but I think they should be meeting, you know, with their AD, once a month, once a quarter. Sadly, and you're asking a very, very important question. We have some coaches who think their job is to kind of fly under the radar and not do much interaction. And I think that's a, you know, a, a mistake. Uh, well, I can see where a coach would be hesitant because you don't want to plant the idea that your sport get cut. So you don't want to go in and like be defending your sport and making the case for your sport. Cause, and I know I would feel that hesitation too. It would be like, you know, any of us who've had jobs in corporate America, you know, going to your boss and sort of, you know, making for the case why you're th this great member of the team or should be up for a promotion or whatever, you know, sometimes it is kind of better to fly under the radar. You don't want to plant in their head that, you know, tennis is a sport to cut, but I also feel like coaches rarely get the opportunity to make the case for their sport to be saved. I know that because I sit in on the administration side of those meetings and, and it's done in my opinion, it's done because on the administration side, when you start talking about cutting a sport, if you brought the coach into the conversation, chances are it's going to become public and you're going to be dealing with um, you know, media members and boosters and the student athletes, once everyone knows, you know, it's a bit of a mess to sort of rein it all in and make some sort of decision. I mean, I understand their reasoning for not being more public about it. But when I think about it from this side, as you and I are talking about tennis and, and the state kind of the, ten, the, the case for keeping tennis, it occurred to me that rarely do, does anyone get to make this argument because the coaches don't find out until it's too late. Um, yeah. So, so, so very well said. And again, um, I think I, last time we chatted, had referenced an article that I wrote that we posted on the ITA website yes. that made the case. So people uh, of your listening body can go and, and read that. But I would also say on that health index, we actually say, how often does your AD come to one of your matches? Have you invited the president to, to a match? So those kind of things are definitely on our uh, list. But again, we ultimately get to the point of you need to be so embedded in your community that they don't think about cutting you. That's why I don't like the fly under the radar, because if you talk to all of the ADs, they will tell you that in this COVID world, they always have kind of in the back of their mind, three sports that if it comes to it, this is 
the ones, you know, that we might be thinking about. These are the ones we might be thinking about. Yeah. And uh, we just don't want tennis to even be on that uh, list that's sitting in somebody's pocket. So I think you have to learn to be a, a real advocate for your sport. And you don't have to necessarily always be talking to them directly. But if you're good, you know, with marketing and social media, and I know that's a lot of your, you know, background as, as well, if the, if the ADs and the presidents are are seeing and reading about not only, you know, the students wins, but what they're doing as leaders on campus. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for example, the ITAs launched our new program called Tennis for America that I think I mentioned to you. And, you know, how are we serving even beyond tennis? Are we good citizens on campus and in our community? But, you know, you raise a really good point about the chicken and the egg. So, yeah. <laughs> okay. So we'll go back to our topic we pinned a little earlier about raising money. I read an article. And I want to say it was on tennis.com. Um, hopefully I'm not attributing the wrong place, but they had talked to uh, Tim Cass at the USTA's campus here. Uh, I, li I live in Florida. So here in Florida where I am. Um, and he was talking about how he thought colleges could help their programs by opening on-campus tennis facilities up to the community, hosting junior and adult tournaments, offering, offering after-school programs, um, which is very similar to what you were saying earlier in the podcast. And I had kind of already had a question on my list for you today uh, about how tennis programs can go about uh, maybe outside of the box thinking when it comes to raising money for their programs. So let, let's tie back into that for a minute. Have you seen any programs who are getting more proactive or more creative with that as we've gone through these last nine months or so? So first of all, uh, happy to be tag teaming with Tim Cass. <laughs> the Tims, apparently to be a big deal in tennis, you got to be named Tim, right? <laughs> well, he and I are working closely together because in addition to his role as general manager of the national campus, he's also the general manager of collegiate tennis. You know, and obviously Tim was himself a great player. He's in our uh, ITA Men's Tennis Hall of Fame. He was a terrific coach. Then he was an administrator. So he really gets this. So all the stuff that I was mentioning about are the same talking points he had. So right out of the gate, I need to give a shout out to Tim and his team because they've actually developed a deck, a PowerPoint deck on how a school can build out this community hub. Oh, great. So your question since COVID hit one of his team members has actually been charged to making calls to lots of schools so they've actually been uh, rolling out this program to schools so let me just go back to even before this idea of creating a community hub that raises money Tim Cass when he was you know at, at New Mexico they did some things that were as simple as having his team do a clinic and a hit with faculty, for example. Just think about if you build up a lot of support, not just among your tennis fans, but faculty across the school, yeah. it's just gonna be much harder for people uh, to cut. So the, I always try to you know, give a context, but then I wanna answer your question always directly because you ask such good questions. So yes, things have been going on. Mostly it's been the USTA trying to promote their community hub, but the ITA, since you and I have visited, also had our December virtual convention, and Tim Cass and his team actually made a presentation to our coaches about this concept. 
Um, the other thing that I'll mention, since we're kind of intersecting the partnership with the ITA and the USTA, we are all now collectively working on a study of Division I tennis. This is kind of big news since you and I have talked, and I think your listeners will enjoy this. We are partnering uh, with a consulting group called Snodgrass Partners on a study that we're calling Reimagining Division I Tennis. Our goal is obviously to make Division I Tennis one of the most vibrant sports in the world of intercollegiate athletics, but also one of the most sustainable. So we're not only trying to roll out specific things like the community hub, but we're trying to study in talking to presidents, ADs, conference commissioners, tennis influencers. I will invite you and all of your listeners, if you have ideas on what you think you know, Division One tennis should do to make itself more vibrant and sustainable. Contact, you know, uh, Tim Russell at the ITA. Go on our website, check out my email, because we're looking for lots of uh, creative thinking. So if you're a tennis fan, if you're a tennis friend and you've had an idea, one of the questions we just asked on a survey to all of our D1 coaches, if you could be commissioner for a day of D1 tennis, what would you do? So I would invite you and all of your listeners to answer that question and feel free to reach out and give me your response. Great. I, I do not have any great ideas off the top of my head, but I'm going to start thinking on it. And I can't wait to see the study when it's done. I will surely write about it and we can probably get another podcast episode in go. when it's all done too. So you keep me posted on that. <laughs> just so you know, it's kind of a six month study. We just started and the goal is to have all of the recommendations out right at the end of May, beginning of June. Perfect. Well, I, I will keep my eyes peeled for that. And I, I'll be thinking in case I come up with anything brilliant. I can hit a tennis ball around. I mean, I, I played tennis a little growing up, never, never competitively went to tennis camp every single summer, my whole life with my cousin, who was like my older brother. And uh, I, I can hit a tennis ball around still. I was thinking as you were talking about that and talking about engaging the staff, um, you know, there's only so many sports we can really play well as we get older <laughs> and, um, you know, golf and tennis are the two that come to mind for me that so many people know how to play at a basic level and can sort of hit a ball around. Uh, for yeah. me, tennis is much easier than golf. So I would rather play tennis. <laughs> I'm a terrible golfer. <laughs> my, my, my wife agrees with your uh, analysis. <laughs> I, I am a terrible golf. When I knew I was going to go to law school, I took golf one summer in college because I thought, well, all lawyers golf. And they say that's where all the like big deals happen is on the golf course. So I went, I learned how to play golf. I'm still terrible, but tennis, I can pick up and not have played in a year and I can still make contact with the ball, you know, on a pretty consistent basis. Golf, I don't play for a month and I can't hit the ball anymore. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, uh, one thing I wanted to highlight was not too long after we did our podcast episode, I think last time I saw the ITA sort of stepping up and filling some of that gap that was left by, um, you know, tennis uh, ending sort of abruptly in the spring and there being no NCAA championships. Can you talk a little bit about how, how ITA sort of tried to step in and provide competitive opportunities um, for athletes when NCAA competition essentially went away? Yeah, so great, great question and happy to speak to that. So we've had two goals since the pandemic hit that we've articulated. This is, you know, in, in a public way, not counting what's on our strategic plan. 
But what we've been saying is one, we want to continue to shine a light on college tennis, but two, we've been trying to provide responsible, safe play opportunities. So we were actually one of the first organized groups in the world to put back on serious competition. So through the summer, we ran the ITA uh, summer circuit, which had over 3000 participants. So we proved that there was kind of a pent up demand. We did it safely. We only had singles, no doubles. And then when college sports were still challenged in the fall, we decided to extend our ITA summer circuit and we created an ITA fall tour that we did in partnership with UTR, which is the universal tennis rating company. And we had upwards of 4,000 people through the fall enter tournaments that not only had college players in them, but uh, American juniors could enter and, and young professionals could enter uh, as well. So for example, in September in San Diego, we had our Oracle ITA Masters that featured top elite American juniors, top college players and young pros. So we've actually uh, tried to be a leader in rolling out not just play opportunities, but safe play opportunities. Mm -hmm. So as the spring is unfolding, the good news is college tennis is actually back. We're having dual matches. So the ITA put out a dual match uh, safe play set of guidelines. We consulted with some of our best medical experts. So we've tried to be a leader and not only trying to show how tennis can be a safe social distancing sport, but to be a leader in giving people best practices for how to do that. And it just, I've, I've, since we talked the first time, I've been so impressed by what you all do and sort of the breadth of what you do and how you get involved and the resources that you provide. And I don't want to imply that you have to be everything to everyone with this next question, but I'm just curious because I, I honestly don't know the answer. Um, what kind of support or opportunities are available for those student athletes and coaches who are part of those programs who have been cut. I, I honestly don't know how involved you all are in that, but I'm sort of curious because we all see the news stories when a program gets cut and there's very little follow-up after that. You rarely hear about what happened to the student athletes or to the coaches because we don't know them on a personal basis. And it's usually sports fans aren't following so closely that they recognize names. Um, but it sort of, it, it seems unfortunate to me because I know there's so many student athletes and coaches who uh, suddenly had no home anymore. Is there anything you all do to help support those folks? Yeah, so great, great question. So we help as much as we can when we're asked. You know, so for example, uh, I'll take Minnesota again because we talked to them and then I'll talk about Winthrop, for example. Uh, I've already referenced St. Edwards. Like, so I'll do it in reverse order. So St. Edwards called and the coach said, can you give me some advice? We worked the best we could with them and it still was going nowhere because the president and the AD had made a decision. Minnesota, for example, has an incredible leadership base, a guy named Jerry Noyce, who's been in the Twin Cities for years and has chaired the USTA's Collegiate Committee. You know, they've presented to the Board of Regents. They're still working on it even after they were huh. cut. They're trying to get back on the February Board of Regents you know, I'm in close contact with both the coach at Minnesota and Jerry, you know, but they don't necessarily need a lot from, you know, the ITA. Winthrop we consulted with, and I think they've actually worked to almost get their program back, which is an exciting thing. We do, in full disclosure, have some coaches who call and say, hey, 
if we can raise a million dollars by Friday, we can save our program. And they're kind of expecting that the ITA is going to send them a, a check for a million dollars. I mean, we're a 501c3 not-for-profit, and we don't yeah. have tens of millions of dollars. So every time a, a program's cut, you know, we're not out sending million-dollar checks. But to that end, take Iowa's men's program was cut, but so was the Iowa swimming program. So I want people to know it's not even just about money. So the swimmers at Iowa, and they have some very, you know, high profile business people who graduated there, they came back to the school and said, by Friday, we'll actually give you $7 million to reinstate swimming. And the school said, I'm sorry, we've already made, you know, the decision. So I don't want yeah. people to think that they're back to your first question that one, there's always one answer. And two, if you solve their answer, that it's coming back. So the ITA, uh, through our, a guy like Dave Mullins, who's our managing director, does a lot with coach education, community engagement. Dave will consult with coaches. I'll consult whenever I'm asked. But, you know, there's some schools uh, that it's already a done deal. So part of our protocol is we do write to presidents, ADs, and, and you know, boards of trustees trying to make the case on behalf of a school. But to your right. point, usually it's too late. What we're trying to do is get the earliest glimpse mm -hmm. that there might be a crack in the armor to get in, because usually by the time the decision's made, it's really hard to bring a, a program back. Over yeah. the years, there have been a few, uh, I think Western Michigan, uh, I, I've mentioned uh, Winthrop and the like, but it's tough sledding to try to bring them back once they're cut. Yeah. And that's why, you know, I want to talk earlier about, and not to put one more thing on coaches. I mean, I, my brother-in-law and sister-in-law have worked in college athletics most of the time that I've been dating and married to my husband. And so I, I hear a lot about college athletics, even outside of the work that I do. And I know that most people who work in college athletics, whether it's a coach or an administrator are doing like two and three people's jobs and, uh, you know, are, are incredibly busy. So I hate to like put more on coaches. I just know from being on the consulting side that when those decisions are made, the coaches rarely consulted or warned about it. And so yeah. you, to me, in my opinion, you have to be proactive because it is, by the time you find out, it is likely going to be too late. So right. I hate to put one more thing on coaches, but from no, being I, on the other side, I, I think you have to be. Yeah, you're spot on. That's why we developed this health index to try to give them some specific measures, yeah. but I agree with you completely. Well, and honestly, when we talked last time, I think I tweeted a couple of times about the health index because I thought it was such a cool idea. And I did have coaches from other sports who follow me who thought it was so neat. And, you know, either there wasn't an organization that's as well organized in their sport or they weren't doing anything like that. Um, and I, that was really cool to see other sports going, wait a second, like we should do that for our sport. And, you know, many of the questions would apply to other sports as well and they could sort of adapt it for their own use. But uh, I know that that was kind of a, a crowd favorite when I was sharing our last episode. So it wasn't just folks, uh, you know, tennis coaches and that those kind of folks who were listening to the episode because I heard a lot of feedback from coaches and other sports too. So yeah. I think the health index is a, a pretty cool thing. You know, so you were nice to tweet it because we have a group that's called the Intercollegiate Coaches Association Coalition. So oh. it's like ICAC. And we had a couple of the executive directors of other sports after they heard your podcast who called me up and I just sent them the index. <laughs> and I said, it's like Tom Peters old 
you know, book where he talked about creative swiping. It's like whatever you can do to use this to save your program. So if just that one thing, uh, you know, resonated with people after your podcast, let's go. <laughs> well, and I think that's great. Cause I think sometimes people think it's a, it, probably fans more than people who are working in and around college athletics, think it's a competitive thing. Like if you help teach golf, how to sell, save itself, maybe tennis gets cut and golf gets kept. Like they see it as a, like a competitive thing where why would you want to help any other sport? Because then you might get cut instead of that, but it's not like that. I mean, the conversations I've been part of on the consulting side, um, you know, the factors are usually facilities is almost always a huge factor, no matter what the sport is. Um, even I was on the team that went into UAB over football. I mean, this isn't just an Olympic sport problem. Th these conversations happen in football too. And in basketball, um, facilities are such a big one. And then the other one that I feel like comes back over and over is competitiveness of the program. I feel like I've been in a lot of those conversations where it, they hadn't been competitive for a long time. There's not a great recruiting base in the state that they're in. Like they just don't foresee a path where they're ever going to be competitive. Yeah. And so do they, their argument is, do we want to keep around a sport? We know we're never going to be good at. They just don't see the path to get there. Um, you know, so when these things are discussed behind closed doors and they're trying to decide how those cuts are going to be made, you know, I, I think those discussions are different than maybe fans think those, the, the, the way it goes. It's not, it's rarely like, well, should we cut tennis or should we cut track and field? It's usually not an either, or they usually come in and they've identified a problem with one or more programs it's not there's no competitive thing about it. it's not an either or like someone has been targeted for a very specific reason <laughs> oh that's right I mean so I would say two things one I believe in the rising tide yes you know, raises all boats but we've also seen this past spring that very often schools have come in and cut two or three or four programs it's not historically been just one I mean we knew and know that there is a serious issue when a school like Stanford actually cut 11 sports. That's the most shocking thing I have seen this entire time. Right. So was that, that should be mm -hmm. the lightning bolt, you know, to everybody. And granted, yeah. they had like 36 or 43 or whatever number. They had this mega number. But still, when Stanford's cutting 11 sports, that should be a wake-up call for everybody. Right, because that was essentially their brand. That was the conversation my husband and I had when we saw it had been cut. Because I had gone to Stanford to do a story on their Hall of Champions two or three years ago. It's been a few years ago now. And being on campus and being with folks in athletics and talking specifically about that Hall of Champions and the way that they view athletics as part of the university, the messaging that I heard over and over and over really revolved around having so many sports and having so many student athletes and so many opportunities and then how good they were at so many sports. But it was like part, you know, I talk all the time about personal branding because I work with a lot of individuals on personal branding. Um, but like that was Stanford's brand was having so many sports and being good at so many of them. So the fact that they would come in and whack off 11 sports at one time. I mean, the most shocking thing that I have seen happen in college sports during this time period, from my point of view. Yep, you're spot on. It has is, is not been a, a fun and uplifting topic to cover over the last nine months. But like I said, my episode with you, most listened to episode of 2020 by a long shot. It was not even a tiny margin. Um, so I'm really glad that we got to chat about it again. Is there anything coming up for college tennis or for the ITA that 
that you're excited about or we should all be looking out for? Other the study, I, I'm looking for the study, but what else? <laughs> so uh, again, I've referenced that, you know, we're back to playing. So over the next month, we're working on trying to make sure that our division one and two uh, men's and women's national team indoors actually happen. You know, if we're going to come full circle from when we first started this conversation, we finished our team indoor championships at the end of February, right before the pandemic really hit at the beginning of March. So it's amazing that it's almost going to be uh, a year. So I would say, first of all, we should be excited that in whatever small way it's happening, the college tennis is back yep. uh, to the ITAs trying to promote these national team indoors because we really think those are our, some of our best events. And three, I think we're all looking forward uh, to what hopefully will be uh, end of spring NCAA championships. And even though those are the NCAAs and not the ITAs, obviously those are a big deal for any sport. And if we can all navigate to where there is March Madness for basketball and NCAA tennis championships, uh, we will have navigated uh, a heck of a year from, yeah. uh, from March of 2020. Fingers crossed. <laughs> oh, thank you so much for joining the Business of College Sports podcast again. I really appreciate it. Found it just as interesting as I did last time. And uh, if anything else pops up, let me know. We would love to have you back on again. Always a pleasure, and uh, I'll look forward to the next time. Thank you again to Tim for joining the Business of College Sports podcast. I appreciate him coming back again to talk about, quite frankly, a not so fun topic, but I do feel like his organization is doing so much for tennis. And I think there's a lot that folks in other sports can learn as well. So I will link up to some of the things we talked about down in the show notes. If you've got questions for a future episode, an idea for a future episode, please let me know. You can email me Christy at ChristyDosh.com or you can direct message me over on Twitter at SportsBizMiss. I would love to hear from you. Thank you for giving us some of your time. I would love it if you could take a few minutes and head over to whatever podcast service you use and rate and review the podcast. That would be much appreciated. I hope everyone is staying safe and healthy. I'm glad that you took time to spend with me and with Tim and learn a little more about what ITA is doing to support collegiate tennis and uh, keep any more programs, hopefully from getting cut. So thank you. And I will be back again with you next week.